0: next chapter podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc crispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the fillet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
1: Ba 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 ba. Hi, I'm Michael Goodfriend, executive producer of the Play on podcast series. Mia kattigbak is the artistic producing director and co-founder of the award-winning New York-based National Asian American Theater Company, also known as Natco. In New York, Mia has acting credits with LCT3, New York Theater Workshop, New Jersey's Transport Group, lots and lots of others. She's worked regionally at Yale Repertory Theater at Long Wharf, Theater Works in Hartford, lots and lots of places, Actors Theater of Louisville. I won't go on. She's done a ton of television, including How to Get Away with Murder on ABC, The Sinner on USA, Chicago PD on NBC, and more. Her film credits include I Smile Back, Clutter, and Slow Jam King. She's a TCG Fox Foundation Resident Actor Fellow for Distinguished Achievement. And her many recognitions include a Drama Desk Special Award, an Adel Rene Castillo Award for political theater, a New York Independent Theater Award for artistic achievement, an Obie for her performance in Natco's Awake and Sing. She was also the founding director of the Consortium of Asian American Theater and Artists (CAATA), serving as president of its first board. And Mia also plays the nurse and the prince in our Play On Podcast series, Romeo and Juliet. She is here with me now, today, and I'm so excited to talk to her. Mia, welcome to the Play On Podcast bonus content series for Romeo and Juliet.
0: Thank you. Good morning.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Mia, okay, you've had a long history with this particular production. Can you tell us how it ended up in your world, and then how you were instrumental in bringing it to our world.
0: Um, I had been involved with the Play On project since, I think, I actually think I was in one of the first readings of the translations I did, Cymbeline, and I thought, oh, this is a very interesting thing. They're translating Shakespeare, whatever that means. And as I got to know what it was they were doing, I got very, very intrigued and enamored of some of the plays that we were doing. And then I think Romeo and Juliet was probably the last one that I read leading up to that festival that they finally had in 2019, where they did the whole canon um, at CSC. And when I did the first reading of the play, I thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is wonderful. I want it. And Mm -hmm. um, so when we were um, starting to rehearse for the festival, I kind of grabbed Hansel because I didn't want anybody else to get the play. (laughs) And I said, (laughs) I would really like to do this. But um, we, if NACO were to do it, um, it would be an all Asian American cast because the reading that we did was was not all Asian American, um, and I I, so I didn't know whether that was how she envisioned the production to be. Um, so when I said all Asian American, she kind of stopped and she went, okay. <laughs> <So> <laughs> then, um, yeah, and you're
1: so talking that, about Hansel Jung, uh, yeah, the translator yes, that, of yes. this this iteration of Romeo and Juliet.
0: Yeah. Yes, um, and then okay, so I immediately got in touch with her agent, kind of saying, I want, you know, I want um first dibs and I want uh, an option to do it. And as it so happened, one of the folks in the festival was John Diaz, who was at the time the artistic director of Two River Theater in New Jersey, where I had worked before. And I'd known John for a bit and he was directing Cymbeline, the other play that I got enamored with, with Play On It. Mm-hmm which NatCo will do. Um, <clears throat> so um, I immediately pitched uh, Romeo and Juliet to John, um, who at the time had signed on to be one of NatCo's uh, national partners for, for this project we have, of um, the NatCo National Partnership Project. So I said, here's I think the perfect project for us to do because you guys do Shakespeare, we do Shakespeare and it would be an all Asian American cast. And he thought about it and he said, okay. So that was kind of the thing that um, sealed our deal with Two River Theater because it was that 20, the following year, 2020 lockdown, they decided to do a reading of, of Hansel's Romeo and Juliet for an online series that they had because of course, everybody's programming went online. Mm-hmm. So. And the rest is history <laughs> basically
1: so you did it you did it at two river and then it transferred to csc in new york
0: that's right yeah and
1: and you did it uh, you you were there for about what was it about a 3 4 week run as i recall
0: it was a 4 week run and it transferred to to their space but it was a natco production
1: i see so natco maintained it as as its own production and just rented the space in New York. Yeah. Great. How did the play change or evolve for you from that reading that you did years ago to the production that you did on stage in uh, New Jersey and New York?
0: Um, when Dustin and Hansel began working on it, I think Hansel had always envisioned music to be a, a very integral part of the play. And of course, like you know, like alarm bells started to ring in my head. Like a, 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 a musical? Oh my god, that's a lot more um, <clears throat> involved. Uh, and she said, "No, no, 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 not a musical." But that she certain there were there were certain scenes that she really heard musically, mm-hmm. um, and so that became another aspect of the production. And then how they wanted that music to evolve with Brian and with you know the use of the looper.
1: Brian Quijada, the composer. Mm-hmm. And when you said Dustin, Dustin Wills, our director, yeah. uh, your director, and also our director of the Play on Podcast series.
0: Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, exactly. Um, And so things started to evolve around that. I mean, everything from casting, because then we had to, we wanted everyone to, you know, be musical in some way or other. We, we wanted the, the, rehearsal process was a lot of improvisation in terms of how can we add um music or sound even to these particular scenes. Um and so, you know, people would come with their with with their comfort levels with instrument. I mean, I love that I love that I got to play the cymbals <laughs> yeah. in, our, in in the opening thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um so so that that started to evolve the the um not just the text necessarily but but the whole style of the production then started to evolve around this idea of of um music and also dramaturgically true to what the material was was um addressing there's a lot of Lazzi in it i mean it's italian you know and yeah. so that became a whole part of it and, and the orchestration literally of, of all of those aspects um i think had a huge um, effect on the evolution of, of the script and the production.
1: How did it feel going into a booth after all of this experience with the play and doing the podcast version?
0: That Well, that's a whole other art form. I mean, you know, you're in a booth all by yourself, but it helped so much that we had gotten to be a very close company after New Jersey and after New York. And so having people's voices in my ears and knowing Dustin so well and knowing what it was that he was trying to accomplish, but this time orally without any help, you know, no visual um, effects or anything like that was very challenging for me, um, but also a uh, very, um, Exciting because it's you know it's another muscle that I really don't know much about. I mean I don't you know it's it's a whole nother technique. Um, I did an Audible project doing Jessica Hagedorn's Dog Eaters um, purely you know just just an audio book, and I thought, oh my god, this is so different. This is so incredibly different. You know how mm-hmm. how you paint pictures and 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 you know defines what's going on, but purely from your voice. <laughs> and Shakespeare.
1: <laughs> so d- have you had a chance to listen to any of the episodes that have come out yet?
0: The first episode actually. And it's, it's a, it's a funny experience because it's like, Oh yeah. It brings the play back to me, but it's also like, Oh, that's different. Oh my gosh. Oh, I wish I had listened to it before. Cause I would have done that differently. You know, <laughs> um, there's like, it's such a different dimension so you kind of it has it needs like a different oomph you know to 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 um to deliver um mm-hmm. because i know what it was like performing it and i knew the i think i knew the effect you know so i feel like oh did we, did we do justice to that but you know, i hope so <laughs> so mia
1: where are you from where did you grow up
0: i was born in the philippines And I came here when I was 11, and we came to New York first, and then when I was going to go to high school, uh, I got accepted to what was then called the High School of Music and Art, which is now Fiorello, LaGuardia. Mm -hmm. At the time, the high school was up in Harlem, and my mom decided that it was not a good place for somebody to go to high school. Uh, It was a different time. I mean, ironically, I live around the corner from from there now, um, but back then it was really kind of scary. So she moved us to New Jersey. So I was in New Jersey for high school, and then I came back to New York for undergrad.
1: So you did not get to go to LaGuardia, or you did? No, I didn't. Oh, I know, I know. How? So, but you obviously stayed interested in acting and performing, and and were able to forge ahead with a career.
0: Yeah, I mean, I actually thought, the reason I went, I applied to LaGuardia is I wanted to be a musician. Um, I played the piano and I got accepted. And even in undergrad, I thought maybe I wanted to be a conductor. Mm. And um, the reality, especially back then, was for women to become conductors and an Asian American woman to become a conductor. Not that it was any easier in the theater, but mm. um, the theater was also actually always there For me growing up. So,
1: you started to audition for plays in high school, in college. When did you really start to make that transition?
0: College, really. I mean, I mean, actually, I think my first production was when I was in the second grade. (laughs) Because I talked some of my, you know, all Catholics girls school, and I talked some of my classmates into dramatizing a scene from a story that we were reading. And I remember thinking, oh my God, how am I gonna do this? And you know, I asked one of the um, students, one of my classmates who I knew was really, really good drawing stuff. I said, can you draw a kitchen on the blackboard? And she said, sure. And I went, oh, that was easy. And then I asked somebody else, can you do this scene with me? Sure. Oh, that was easy. <laughs> that was probably the easiest production I had. <laughs> that was it.
1: <laughs> and when you began to work professionally, do, would you remember what your first professional job was?
0: It was called The Legend of Wu Chang. It was at La Mama with Pan-Asian rap. And I was just out of undergrad.
1: And it led to uh, you then establishing yourself as an actor in New York? Or did you go to the West a, Coast?
0: It was a long route. I mean, it was yeah. actually very lucky that Pan-, Pan Asian had had actually just um, began at the same time. And I remember, you know, back in the day when you had to look at to read backstage for auditions and stuff. And I, I read that they were doing this open call, and I was too late. I didn't, I didn't make the audition. So I wrote Tisa Tisa Chang, who's the artistic director and founder of Pan Asian. I wrote her a letter saying. You know, I just graduated. I'm very interested, and um, if there's another opportunity, please let me know. And she got in touch, and she said, "Oh yeah, we're going to see other people." And so I went. Night Edition, and it was really good because they were kind of the only game in town in terms of Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did like five more productions for them in the subsequent years, mm. which was really, really, if not more, which is really, really helpful. You know, in terms of just the and having gotten started at la mama you know this kind of historic place and meeting meeting so many of my colleagues and people who have remained very very close friends since then was was wonderful
1: <laughs> so where did natco fit in your trajectory here how at what point did you you, you found this group how did that come into being
0: well i thought I was auditioning for roles in the Western classic canon and the usual response back in the day was, oh, you're very good, but we can't, um, we don't know where to put you because, you know, three sisters, you're supposed to be Russian, and I thought, yeah. So <laughs> this began like, you know, wheels in my brain started to turn about about this and the frustration because, you know, those classic works were being done all over the world. And yet here in the U.S., which is supposed to be the cradle of diversity, <laughs> <laughs> um, I couldn't believe that people couldn't imagine that somebody who looked like you and me, for instance, couldn't be biological siblings Right. Never mind having to be on the nose and accurate about that stuff. It was actually real. I mean, you know, from my own. So I kept doing, I I kept attending class just to make sure that I kept up with my craft. And then I met this other Asian-American actor who came to see something I was doing at Pan-Asian, actually. And he said, I have an idea. How about. Um, founding a theater company. And I said, Are you crazy? No way. That's too hard. Because <laughs> yeah. Tisa had asked me to assist, assistant, to be assistant producer in one of her shows. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, Oh my God, this is so much work, you know? <laughs> um, and it took Richard Eng, who is the co founder of Natco, it took him like two years to convince me to do it. And finally, I kind of said, Not kind of said, I said, um, uh, OK, fine. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll co-found a company if we do European and American classics without having to set them in an Asian context. Hmm. Um, and so he said, "Oh, ha ha, yeah, I was thinking actually of American classics, you know." Um, so that's that was the beginning of Naco, basically.
1: And what? Uh, how long ago was that now?
0: Thirty, three years ago.
1: Wow. And you've kept a hand in, obviously, ever since.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was only me for the longest time. You know, it's it wasn't even a mom-and-pop operation. It was just single mom. <laughs>
1: wow. And yeah. did it turn out to be as much work as you feared it would be, or did you find the work rewarding, ultimately? Both. It was a
0: lot of work and very, very rewarding. But we stayed very small, so mm-hmm. we weathered a lot of the financial turbulence, you know, that the 2008 when that happened, the pandemic when that happened, because, you know, I always used to say Natco is just me and, you know, the overheads really small. And we did two productions per year because that's what equity required for us to remain, um to be able to use equity actors, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and
1: uh, You were able to, did, did the actors work on, uh, did they do waiver or were you able to pay them yeah.
0: I mean, it was kind of sad back then, but it was, you know, it was showcase code. Right. So, and as we, I mean, I think back on it and I remember our Othello. Um, I think I paid the, Oh, it was ridiculous. That was 2000. Was that 2000? must've been 2000. We paid the actors like $250 or something. But the thing was, it was a cast of, 11 or 12 Asian American actors, they were all like, yeah, because we don't get to do this stuff. Right. You know, I mean, I, I remember Joel de la Fuente, who played our Iago, was just like, when am I going to be able to do Iago? Yeah. But yeah. Th- then we worked our way up and now we're on off Broadway contracts.
1: <laughs> Amazing. And how many productions has Natco done?
0: All in all, and at least, because yeah. we always do one a year. So maybe we're up to 40? Amazing. Yeah, yeah.
1: And do you have a plan for what's next for NatCo or is it something that you just kind of breathe life into as the project comes up?
0: Well, we have a new initiative that was growing in my head when we hit our 25th anniversary and I started to talk to other theaters in New York about... <clears throat> how to celebrate that milestone for us. And I thought, oh, what if I ask, you know, several theaters to host a production that we would be bringing back from our history? And so many people were interested, but the timing and the economics weren't working. Um, and then uh, the public theater actually said, huh, we might be interested in doing all three because, you know, we have we have three um Initiatives we have uh, Asian Americans doing the Western and American classical canon, and then adaptations of these classics by Asian American playwrights, and then plays written by non-Asian Americans, not for Asian Americans, but being world premiered by Asian Americans. So I thought we have samples of all three, and the public was like, "We're interested." And then we talked and talked and talked, and it's you know it's crazy the scheduling over there. And they decided to, they said we'll do Awake and sing, which was our um, American classic entry. But that whole process made me think about partnerships. And I thought, hmm, what would happen if we did this? And not a co-production, um, but, but an honest to God partnership. And so I thought, let's take it on the road. It's called National Asian American Theater Company. Let's partner with other regional theaters so now we have one, two, three, four, five partners. So we have Long Wharf Theater was the first one. And there, I mean, Jacob Padron, the artistic director of Long Wharf is, is key, key to the NNPP, the partnership project, because um, he was such a um, thought partner with all right. this, because um, he's got the Soul Project, which he did with... Uh, Latina uh, playwrights. Right. And so it was Long Wharf Theater, Soho Rep, and then two uh, Theater Squared in Arkansas has just signed on. Uh, People's Light in Pennsylvania is a partner. And we're going to be going to Oregon to talk to Portland Center Stage to solidify. We hope it will be like a you know complete, complete that partnership. Right. So geographically, What we're trying to do is get these larger, predominantly white institutions to essentially do not those missions, because we're so teeny, teeny, teeny. But if we can convince them that this is not a one-off, that it's not it's not a co-production where they get to check off a box and we've done our duty with Asian Americans, but you know how do we actually get the leaders of these institutions to to make it part of their um, programming in perpetuity essentially that that this is a good thing to do um, on a on a very organic level, you know. so that's that's the plan.
1: <laughs> is there any interest in your mind at this point in having a permanent space?
0: No. Why is that? Real estate. I mean, New York, number one, it's so expensive.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then what happens is that you become a landlord. I mean, you know, to offset your costs. Right. I, I I thought about this when Natco was maybe like 10 years old, 10, 12 years old. And I thought, what if three or four Asian American theater companies got together and ran a space? And, you know, if it was three companies, we have six, six productions already. If we're I'm all not. doing two productions each... And then I started looking at spaces with um, Jorge Ortol, who was then the executive director of Maí Theater, and we had pitched it to Pan Asian and there was another theater company at the time, Imua, um, and all you know, all everybody was interested. But when we started looking at spaces and and really crunching numbers and figuring out what was entailed, I thought it's hard enough to do it without a permanent space, <laughs> you know. So right. And I'm not Ellen Stewart. She's brilliant. She can buy a building for a dollar. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tell us who Ellen Stewart is, just so Ellen we. Stewart
0: founded. La... She was La Mama essentially, right. and didn't come from a theater background, but was so energized with what was going on in the Lower East Side, especially, and um, and I believe her, one, two, three, four buildings. Um, she got from the city was like, you know, the sweat equity stuff. Right. So I think she bought La Mama proper for a song and started to renovate it and started to present stuff there. I mean, she incubated all of these major, major American playwrights. You know, Sam Shepard was there, Lanford Wilson was there. I mean, you know, it was crazy it was crazy what was going it was fun it was amazing it was it was
1: but this was back in the 70s 80s 60s 60s. yeah right so and and then you really could do that i mean you could you could get a building (laughs) or so
0: i mean that area of new york was like bombed out i mean you know it was crazy those those buildings were
1: mia do you remember what your introduction to shakespeare was
0: I had to do it in class. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I took a Shakespeare class when I was still in undergrad, and I was very fortunate because the gentleman who was teaching it, who became my mentor, made it so uh because you know, I mean, I was a pianist and and I took dance in undergrad, and and, and there are there's a pedagogy, you know, there's there in music you play scales and dance, you have the bar in acting at the time i thought you know it's just my feelings <laughs> and i know i have to be heard and i know i have to, you know i have to move but <clears throat> there's there wasn't at that time for me anyway any kind of pedagogy but this gentleman broke it down to this is how you would approach a script and he started us on the sonnets so that was that was kind of tough um and i remember he said, you apply the same principles, you know, the the very for real Stanislavskian thing about who, you, who are you, where are you, what do you want, how are you going to get it, who are you talking to, you mm-hmm. know. So just to get those basic things and apply it to a sonnet was amazing for me. And then after gleaning whatever it was that we had to do with the sonnet and then moving on to a scene. So I think monologue from a scene in Shakespeare before you do a, an actual scene with somebody else. And <clears throat> I recall my two audition pieces from Shakespeare was Lady Percy in Henry IV. And I can still recite some of it, believe it or not, sometimes.
1: Oh, and, go uh, ahead. <laughs> Let's hear it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, yet for God's sake, go not to these wars. The time was, Father, when you broke your word, when you were more endeared to it than now, when your own son... When my heart's, no, nope, that's later on. Through many a northward glance to see his father bring up his powers, but he did long in vain. Who then persuaded you to stay at home? There were two honors lost, yours and your son's. For yours, God of heaven, it. For his, it stuck upon him as the sun, and the gray vault of heaven and by his light, did all of England move to do brave acts? He wow. had no legs that followed not his gait. And I know the sense of it in his speech, which, mm-hmm. uh, anyway, anyway, that Percy was the model, even though he had these imperfections. And I love, yeah. love, love that monologue. And my yeah. other monologue was Juliet Gallop. <laughs> You know, so learning the craft through Shakespeare was essentially my training.
1: Join Play On Premium to get merch like T-shirts, hoodies and coffee mugs, ad-free episodes and bonus content video featuring interviews with the actors, producers, playwrights and directors who brought it all to life. Go to ncpodcasts.com and subscribe to Play On Premium to support the art and the artists. So that those two pieces became your audition pieces, yeah. Or any stuff, yeah, any classic play that any Shakespeare play that you auditioned for.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know, back in the day when you were supposed to show up with like a series in a comic classic and a series in a comic um, contemporary. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I kind of, I think my contemporary was Amanda from Glass Menagerie and everybody looked at me like, you're 24 years old. What are you doing doing Amanda? <laughs> <laughs> and I, said, I think I was born a character actor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah And then I think I convinced folks to uh, to. Um my comic was uh Shopping Malian. And they're like, i like contemporary. And I said, <laughs> oh, classic contemporary. <laughs> right. So
1: you just recently returned from London.
0: Yeah. Can yeah. you tell
1: us what you were there for?
0: Um, we did Annie Baker's um Infinite Life and it was a co-production between Atlantic Theater and the National Theater in London. So we did a run here and it was her, it, this is her latest play. Um, so we did it at the Atlantic, um, huge success, it was wonderful. It's an amazing play, I love this play. And we had like three weeks in between and then we went to London, rehearsed it for four or five days, went to tech and then started performing. And so we were there from November 5 through January 14th. So it was kind of a long run. And I mean, you know, it's just like such a gift to be able to perform at the National. Uh, People were asking, oh, have you ever worked in London? No, this is my first time at the National. (laughs) So yeah, yeah. It It was a great experience. And, you know, especially with this play.
1: What was it like as an American actor being at the National in London? How how What are the similarities and differences for a professional actor in these two cities?
0: <laughs> well, the practical ones, for instance, the person that they call the stage manager doesn't behave like what we think of as a stage manager. For me, it's like, oh, she's more like a company manager, but she's there for all of the rehearsals. She kind of fields, every, you know, all the needs of the actors and the what do they call her i think she's called a deputy stage manager who was on book during rehearsal it was actually the person who was calling the show so you're like huh <laughs> so you know so so there are those practicalities um because the national is such a huge theater so all of the dressing rooms that legendary you know the dressing rooms on three floors overlooking the the courtyard is essentially so, you know, you could get a dressing room um, and they try to put you near your theater, but you might be on the second floor and you have to go downstairs to your th- I don't think we really experienced a typical, um, we didn't have a typical experience because we barely rehearsed. So we didn't really know the, the, you know, mechanics of, of that. We all showed up still off book. And I think James McDonald, who directed the production, was was kind of relieved that we were still off book and he kind of relaxed a little bit. We remembered most of our blocking and they wanted to change stuff anyway. So, you know, it's kind of cool that we we moved from rehearsal room to the stage very quickly, just because of the nature of the production. Um, we were kind of warned by Annie. She said, you know, um, the folks in London listen differently to plays they really mm. listen. They're very language oriented, and in back of my brain, I'm thinking, and he's just worried that nobody's going to laugh in the same way that people in New York laughed. But that didn't that didn't prove to be true. I mean, you know the they the humor was intact, and you know the reception of the play was you know just as gorgeous. And and I loved running into people in the lobby in between matinee and evening because. They interact very differently, you know. It's I'm a stranger, so you know I find that New York audiences are very, very supportive. And it's like I go to the theater, so you know I I want to tell you how much I enjoyed the the experience. My personal experience was I would walk into the lobby and people had questions. I mean, they would be like we're disagreeing over there because we can't figure out what the play is about. <laughs> that's, that's okay. <laughs> if you, you know, if you still want to talk about it, that's terrific. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So the, and the way that the, the national is designed, right. Is it is designed to kind of force that mingling among audience members and yeah, and the performers, mm-hmm. as I recall, like mm-hmm. you, you, in order to, get out of the building you do have to kind of walk through uh the the milieu of people that are attending these plays
0: well you don't have to you can sneak out the stage door <laughs> <laughs> Um, but but um the way the nationals lobby is really encourages you know kind of in interaction and mm-hmm. you don't even have to be seeing a show to you know it's open to everyone so I mean, you know, I'm some, when, during tech, I think I just sat down at one of the long tables in the lobby. I just wanted to get away because, you know, it's front of house as opposed to back of house. And in the back of house is like this maze of rehearsal rooms and the canteen and the dressing rooms. And front of a house is all of the, you know, cafes and bookstore and entrances to all of the other theaters. And um, you can just go there and sit and have tea. And it's incredible because some... I remember this one lady sat down across from another lady and she said, Oh, what are you, what are you here to see? And she said, Oh, nothing. I'm just, I just had an extra hour. And I thought I'd have some coffee here. What are you here to see? And then before you know it, Oh, huh, that sounds interesting. Maybe I'll come see it. So it's it's like such a great networking thing. Um, but anyway, I think theater lives with the Brits in a different way than it lives with Americans, you know? So in terms
1: of it's very much a part of their kind of daily lives right i mean
0: yeah
1: it's it's not some esoteric thing that 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 you sort of do as a treat it's sort of woven into your your life yeah go to see plays yeah yeah no matter what you know, class, income, all of that, that mm-hmm. really, it, it it's something that's ingrained very early on.
0: Yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah.
1: And did you notice that in the audiences that you played to that there was a, a sort of a level of involvement that felt different to you from the New York audiences?
0: Not that much of a difference, I don't think. I mean, I think, we used to joke that you know, in New York, you you laugh loud to show everybody that you got the joke, <laughs> and in London, it that didn't really matter that much. You know, people would people would just laugh in reaction to, um, but the power of Annie's play, I think, is that we were very um, satisfied. I mean, not satisfied, but but um, encouraged that that kind of leaning in that we experienced in New York, which is a very different experience. I, I rarely feel that as an actor on stage from from audiences here, this kind of gradual leaning in to figure, uh, to get closer to what was happening. Mm-hmm. was also happening in London a lot. And I mean, we heard feedback, um, you know, attesting to that, so, that was just like, oh, that's amazing. That's, you know, that's Annie and James. No, you know, I think those are their, that's their work because the, the challenge of an Annie Baker play are those, are those silences, you know, that James orchestrated so beautifully. So that was, that was a great experience.
1: You're now back in New York city and I've seen, the advertisements. Can you tell us uh, what's coming up for
0: you? Uncle Vanya, I love Chekhov. Uncle Vanya at Lincoln Center. It's it's my Broadway debut. <laughs> no
1: kidding, congratulations.
0: Thank you.
1: <laughs> Starring some pretty uh, amazing people.
0: Amazing company. Steve Carell as Vanya, who I think is gonna be brilliant. Yes. And um, Alfred Molina as the professor. Alison Pill as Masha, I believe. Um, Anika Nani Rose as Yelena. Jane Shell as Mama. Um, <laughs> I'm missing a couple of people.
1: Uh, William Jackson Harper. Bill Jackson Harper asking,
0: as Astroff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who,
1: who are you playing?
0: I'm playing Marina.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about Marina?
0: Marina is the nanny. She's raised everybody. Uh, I think she feels... I haven't discussed this with my director yet, so I'm not sure that this is accurate representation. It's just, you know, it's, it's the stuff that I've been, like, pulling around in my head. I'm like, I actually want to be the mistress of this house, but I can't be, <laughs> you know? Huh. And, yeah.
1: Well, and you, the, Chekhov lends itself, himself, speaking of writers, Annie Baker and silences and Chekhov and subtext, right? Chekhov uh-huh. was the the sort of the the master, the first great master of writing subtext and having a story for your character that's extra textual, right? That's not, that's actually not spoken, but mm-hmm. that's really plays into the character's motivations.
0: I think even if that's not the purpose of the I I feel like it's how I like to work. I always want to make up subtext and then, if it's not and it it doesn't even necessarily have to agree with what everybody else is doing on stage you know right. as long as i'm not ruining the play um, so but
1: it makes it, it makes a character so much more interesting and multidimensional
0: yeah yeah and and chekhov's characters are that i mean it, they're so confusing sometimes but if you just kind of go for it it's i mean vanya is tough You know, this grown man who is bitter, but who has all of these bitter pills to swallow. But I think he's incredibly funny because Chekhov calls all of these comedies, you know. Right. And um, that's why I think Karel will be brilliant because he can do all of that. And he's not scared of it. I mean, from what I could tell anyway, from from our first read through. So, um, so, I, I mean, I didn't even realize how much I loved Chekhov until a friend of mine said, Natko's done a lot of Chekhov. I guess she was like <laughs> Chekhov, huh? And I went, Oh, we have well, done a lot of Chekhov.
1: <laughs> and actors love Chekhov. I mean, I've never met an actor who didn't love Chekhov.
0: Yeah, but they shouldn't always do him weepy. Everybody right. does it like, oh, we're Russian and we're deep. You know. <laughs> Some of sometimes they're silly people. And that's kind of where the comedy and where the where the heart comes from. You know?
1: Well, yeah, Chekhov really saw the the hilarity and all of our pathos, right? Our feeling sorry for ourselves and and taking ourselves so seriously. Yeah. Do you think that there's subtext in Shakespeare?
0: Oh, yeah. The nurse, you know? I mean, she's a bod, right? So everybody, you know, to, to just do the body stuff because she's so entertaining and, you know, but for me, what my subtext was always, and I, you know, I always assume that my characters are really smart, <laughs> unless they're not. <laughs> but even if they're not, there's like a, there's like a their own kind of um, intelligence working. You know, it's not academic intelligence or any of that stuff, but there's still like a kind of uh, something going on. So I think the nurse is Lady Capulet is such a shitty mom. You know, she never talks to her daughter. So my daughter got taken away from me by God. So all of my maternal love has been poured to Juliet. So I, I, I wondered, in fact, um, I asked Dustin and, and, and Hansel uh, that I think the nurse and Sir Capulet may have had a thing, Mm. um because you know he's the only one who's, who calls me by my name so so you know what is that dynamic especially when he starts um railing on juliet <clears throat> and then that scene the subtext is oh my god he's going to hit her again is this not is this the first time he's showing the possibility of physical violence so all of that stuff has to kind of play in somewhere there and i think it informs the comedy anyway you know so that whole that whole scene where oh I remember when she was just you know when I, I weaned her blah 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 all of that stuff i think there's so many opportunities to like dig those are digs To Lady Capulet, it's like, oh yeah, I mean your daughter. Oh, you weren't here. (laughs) Sorry, you know that kind of stuff. Like you, you know, you didn't even care enough for your daughter. To there are all those opportunities, and and I think as long as that's happening, also at the same time that there's this, you know, funny body stuff happening, could be interesting.
1: (laughs) So you've mentioned that you wanted to have Asian Asian representation in. Plays that are, that had been uh, really traditionally just only cast with white people or, you know, that, that, um, I'm, you put it much more eloquently than I, but that, you know, uh, um, that roles and, uh, plays not be so, uh, race specific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that there be inclusivity in casting. I'm curious to know if you feel that in a cast say a, a, a all Asian American cast is there a different sort of feel to the story of Romeo and Juliet do you know what i mean so like with with Romeo and Juliet being played by all Asian Americans I mean, obviously, there's there's a, a going to see the play, an audience, you know, recognizes immediately. Okay, everybody's Asian American or Asian of Asian origin in this play. Do you, as a performer, feel a difference in the way that the work is created? Does that make sense when yeah, working it with does. All-
0: yeah. Maybe a, a more radical example would be our awakening, actually, because the cultural difference is <clears throat> to the naked eye, maybe a lot more um, obvious. So you walk in, and this supposedly Russian Jewish American family, um, I mean, Clifford Odette's, you know, but the, the family around the table are all Asian American. Um, what does that do to an audience? as performers because this is not Poe's mandate we just do the play we don't you know we don't worry about the fact that the audience is going to be seeing asian american faces because that's kind of the point um, so you know we we do our best to get a creative team together the best actors together we do our we do resp- these things responsibly because the director is jewish american and he said you know every time we would say something when we were just hearing the play for the first time and I said, oh my god I don't want a, I don't want a caricature of a Jewish of a Jewish woman you know um, who's a first generation not even is she first generation Bessie in any case he said we'll give you a coach you know a dialect coach great because our director was very good he said there are actually three kinds of English happening in the play. there's the immigrant. So it's very inflected with Russian. And then there's you know the, the, the parents, the grandpa and then the parents who were possibly born in Russia but have been here for most of their life. So there's a little bit of Yiddish still, but, mm. but it's Bronx. And then you have the kids who are Americans and it's totally Bronx and Jewish. So then right. we do our work, we do the dialect work, but it's really to serve the play. And the point is you serve the play and you're seeing it served well by maybe a, a group of people that you're not accustomed to, to seeing will do Clifford Odets. So <clears throat> when we're successful, um, there's the recognition, because we don't want erasure. You know, I think the point is, this is what's, this is what's bringing you Odette's. Um, Oscar Eustace actually put it very laughingly. He said, oh, gee, huh, immigrants. Families living together in a small space. Poverty. Mm -hmm. Gee, is that only the purview of Russian Jewish? (laughs) (laughs) It's so translatable to all of the immigrant groups who have come here. And so um, I love telling this story because two instances. One was I walked out into the lobby and there was this young Asian American woman who was weeping. And she said, I didn't know what this was. I kept thinking, Clifford, are they going to make it like in Chinatown? Are they going to, you know? And then she said, oh, no, they're dressed like they're speaking that kind of English. And at first she was, you know, it, it was jarring to her. But then she said, oh, my God, that's my family. That's my family's story. So she identifies with. You know or sympathizes or empathizes with what's happening on stage even though there's this dissonance of it's a different language it's a di- you know all the cultural references are different then i we also had a similar um reaction from a white jewish woman who said i never thought this was gonna work what's up with the asians doing you know <laughs> doing all this stuff and right. then she said within the first scene she was like oh my god there's my auntie huh my auntie was like that. Oh my God. That's exactly how she was. And then and then you just pay attention to the play. But it's so good to hear that because that's what theater should be doing anyway. I mean, we're asked to believe that there's a castle and a moat on stage and nobody says a word. You know? And <laughs> right. it's like, and so why should why should this be different? You know, it's like <laughs> I don't get it.
1: <laughs> it's so interesting because what you're describing in the approach that you do to the work uh, at Natco is not to make the story about your culture, but to bring your culture to the story. Is that accurate?
0: I think we bring our culture regardless. Mm -hmm. And we all know that already. So it's nothing like I have to fetch something from growing up Filipino. I mean, I always used to think Filipino, Jewish is the same thing. (laughs) You know, if you really, if you really think about how many of our um, cultural artifacts, if you want to call them that are, there's so much that's um, shared, you know, and I feel like it wasn't a reach for, I mean, I'll never forget one of our actors kind of laughing out loud after we had done a scene and he was just like, ha, ha, sounds like Sri Lankan families, you know? Mm. So these things become recognizable, especially with good plays because they're like Shakespeare and Chekhov and Odette's, because they're talking about um, human beings interacting under under circumstances that I, I think we choose these kinds of plays because they're recognizable by so many people around the world. even you know, even as remote as Mongolia or something like that. There are family dynamics that I think we all share to some degree or other. So we can't help but bring our backgrounds to it because, you know, if I'm having a scene with my daughter who I think is pregnant, I mean, I'm just reacting in a way I think Bessie would be reacting, but of course it's informed by You know, if if anything like that has happened to our family, but there's no there's no there's no um, mandate to bring what it is from your Taiwanese family to this play. Bring what you have as a good actor to this play. Like, do your research, you know, know what's happening between these people and. Let's start from there, you know.
1: Right. I'm Curious, too. So. Natco is a, a Asian American theater company. That that word, that adjective, Asian American, is so huge, right? Because, I mean, what is Asian? It's <laughs> it's immense, right? It's like Latino. What is Latino? Is is everything? It, yeah. I mean, uh, it, you know, how do you d- Define it or encapsulate it for the theater company.
0: That's a tough one because if we were to go by the colonialists,
1: <laughs> right.
0: find the world for us, Greek was Greece was considered Asia Minor, right? Because Asia Major was China and the big, you know. Southeast Asia, if you go, so that's as far west, and then far east, far east, the far east is what they used to call it, you know, Japan, far east. Mm-hmm. Indonesia Asia? I mean, some people think Indonesia is still Asia. They might not agree. <laughs> and how far north, like the Urals, Mongolia, is that Asian? People say yes, because they look Asian, whatever that means. So it got to the point where we thought, well, it's self-definition, right? If you think you're Asian, and I mean, if you told me you thought you were Asian, I might question that a little bit, <laughs> but you know, but it's it's a complicated one. It's a very complicated one, because going back to Othello, when we did Othello, everyone said, oh, it's an all Asian American cast. Is Othello gonna be white you know, or black to show that he's an outsider. I said, no, he's Asian American too. Hmm. Because we have those prejudices in Asia. And it turned out that our Othello looked not Asian, but interestingly, among a cast of eleven or twelve, I think there was, he was the only one who spoke his native language out of a oh. cast of Asian Americans. So he spoke Tagalog, you know. Oh. Um so there are there's that's another aspect to it. It's like what is your perception? What makes it? How do you define Asian? Is it because of physical features? Is it like a cultural thing? I mean, I met someone in the Philippines, I was visiting there once, and she was blonde, blue eyed, spoke with a Tagalog accent, behaved like she was Filipina because she grew up there. Right. I don't know that she would define herself as Asian American, but she was certainly Asian <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> in her, you know, in her behavior. It's a complicated question. It's a really complicated one. And I remember we were criticized because when we did the seagull, they said, you know, it, it was uh not an all Asian American cast. And I said, Who are you talking about? Everybody's Asian American. And he said, Yeah, you're seagull, he's Indian. You know, I said, huh. That's South Asia, you know. So there are all those there there. We Tackle each issue as it comes up.
1: <laughs> well, the best the best definition I've ever heard from was from a casting director because, you know, I, I, uh, in my own experience as an actor, this was something that happened to me often. You know, what are you? Who are <laughs> you, basically, you know? Because I, I look Latino or I look uh, Italian or Greek or, uh, you know, I also look white, right? And ultimately, you know, with this... Particular casting director said to me, Is it's ultimately how you identify yourself.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Self definition. Yep.
1: Yeah. How, what do you think is the story for the nurse after this play ends?
0: Oh, man. Everybody's dead. Uh, <laughs> the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, right? Yeah. And I would assume that this it's, it's generations long, this animosity between these two families. Look at what the dramaturgic, there was like some research saying that at that, t- either the time that Shakespeare wrote it, there was a housing shortage in Italy. So all the kids were having to live with their parents. And, mm-hmm. and the plague, plus the plague. So everybody was cooped up in their homes crowded. And so tempers were high, you know? So the nurse is probably having to navigate all that with Juliet, who's a restless young woman anyway. She'll probably stay with the Capulets, but there's no, essentially there's no purpose. I mean, Juliet was her purpose. So she'll do what she's always done. Take care.
1: What do you take away with you as an actor from having performed this role these roles in Romeo and Juliet, but especially the nurse, what lives with you after the play dies?
0: We as the older people should know better. (laughs) I mean, the nursing, pardon the pun, the nursing of these very, of, of the rancor, the play also says we don't even know where it came from. We don't even know why we hate each other so much. And yet the the passing down through generations of this kind of hatred, I mean, it's that strong. It's hatred um, is is um, inexplicable. And here we are centuries later, still kind of going through the same thing. you know, you lose track of what it is that caused the the animosity to begin with. and yet, And yet it's inherited somehow. It's just like, we don't like them because we've never liked them. Just because Right. you're going to bomb your, your villages just because, you know, so it lives still now. And, you know, you look at these plays and it's just, what's wrong with us? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: What gives you hope? (laughs)
0: Theater. <laughs> no, I mean, I feel like you know, at least, I, I'm, at least, I mean, I do have purpose. You know, it's, it's. I'm thankful that there's Natco because every time the pandemic actually kind of fine tuned this idea of mine to partner with other theater companies. You know, at that mm-hmm. point, we could just zoom with each other and just talk about what do you think? What do you think? You know, would you want to do this? And the, the very hard work of um, don't stop using us to get more money, you know, because the minute you say, oh, I'm going to be doing an Asian-American programming thing. You know, I know that people will say, oh, congratulations, we'll, we'll support that. So the hope that it's possible to change people's minds.
1: <laughs> Do you know what's next for NatCo?
0: Yeah, we're doing this, um, we co-commissioned with Long Wharf Theatre, who's one of our partners, this play called Isabel, by a very young playwright whose name is Ruth Tang, and we're going to be producing it in June of this year, and it's about, it's so difficult to to explain it, It's, it's a fantastical play about gender identity, it's Deft, but incisive, and it's so deep, but you don't know that it's deep. It's it's just it's it's hard to explain their work. You have to see it. <laughs> and Great. we are we've started working on um, Andrea Tome's Cymbeline, the play. Oh, on wonderful, Cymbeline, yeah, yeah.
1: Another play on translation.
0: Another play on translation, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's
1: terrific. Mia Katigbak, it has been such a great honor and privilege to get to talk with you this morning. I'm so grateful that you were involved, that you took the initiative to have the play produced, uh, Romeo and Juliet, uh, Hansel Jung's translation directed by Dustin Wills at Two River. And And Hansel.
0: Hansel directed as well.
1: Right. That's right. She Uh, co-directed. And you really made it happen. Uh, it's really wonderful to hear uh, an actor talk about how they can catalyze a, a production. That we that actors have that power sure. ultimately to sure. to make things happen. We, you know, so many actors kind of have a, a a laid back approach or have a dream to do something but don't take the initiative. So it's it's really great to hear your story and to hear how you were able to make Natco a uh, a thing. <laughs> being a, such a force in the theatrical world it's been a great talking with you
0: thank you michael thanks for having me
1: you've been listening to the play on podcast bonus content series you can learn more about the play on podcast at next chapter podcast website ncpodcasts.com that's n as in next c as in chapter podcasts with an s at the end.com where you can find other play on podcast series and interviews along with talk podcasts like the 500 indecent with kiki anderson beef with bridget todd and a whole lot more i'd like to thank jeremiah tittle the founder of next chapter podcasts and my producer pete musto Our audio engineer, editor, and sound designer is Justin Cortese. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcast for updates on all the latest content, and don't forget to rate and review our shows. It really makes a difference. I'm Michael Goodfriend, and I look forward to sharing more incredible works in the Play on Podcast series with you, along with lots of enlightening bonus content at Next Chapter Podcast.